Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. I could almost have titled the sermon that, but I think it's copyrighted. So anyway, if you have your copy of God's word, I would love for you to turn to Mark chapter 15. We are in Mark chapter 15, looking at verses 33 through 41, the death of Jesus Christ. Probably one of the the saddest things to read, but one of the glorious, most glorious things to have happened. And uh, we're going to talk about why it's so glorious. You know, in Mark, in chapter 1, verse 1, he started out by declaring he was writing a gospel of Jesus Christ, or about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it's made clear throughout God's, Mark's gospel, the, the baptism of Jesus, God declares it. At the transfiguration, God declares it again. It's cl- declared over, over and over, and he climaxes his gospel here with the testimony of a Roman centurion. The same testimony that Mark started his gospel with, the Son of God. So we see in the death of Jesus, and I'm going to use a big word, and I don't want to scare you with it, but this is a very valuable word. It's called propitiation. Propitiation. I'm going to say it many times so you can be able to pronounce it right and impress your friends. Propitiation is a doctrine. It's a doctrine of paying for someone else's crime. Atoning for it even though it's not your crime. That's what, it, that's what propitiation is. So I'm going to kind of explain it as we go. But let me read the passage. And I hope you'll see in this passage propitiation. Starting with verse 33. Remember, Jesus is on the cross. He's on the cross. He's been there since 9 in the morning, roughly. And this is about noon. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until 3 in the afternoon. And at 3, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, it is very clear from this short passage that there is a lot of depth here of what you did for us. There's millennia of of prophecy that is fulfilled. There's millennia of words that were written testifying to the plan of redemption that was coming in your son, Jesus Christ. And right here in these small set of verses, we see it happen. We see its completion. We see your grace and your mercy flow from the cross. May it break into our hearts this morning and renew and refresh our lives that we may know our sin was 
paid for at a great price. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Christ, the Son of God, he died a heinous death on the Roman cross. And he did that to satisfy the wrath of God. The wrath of our holy God against sin. That's propitiation. God did not erase our sins. He didn't just wipe them off the record like you do in a court when your record is expunged. He punished his son for our sins. He did it on behalf of us to bring us to God. That is propitiation. It's a big word, but it covers a lot of ground. So what happens around Christ's death on the cross that indicates that God's wrath was satisfied? I mean, what, how do we know? Well, I'm going to show you this morning right here. There's three episodes that happen in these verses at Christ's death that indicate his propitiation of sins met God's requirement. His, his wrath, God's mercy, and hope is seen right here in these passages. So let's, let's start with the wrath of God. Now, most of us don't like even talking about the wrath of God, but it's real. It's very real. We see it a lot in the Old Testament, but we're seeing it here very clearly. The darkness of abandonment, verses 33 through 36. Let me read it again. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Now, darkness over the whole land. Darkness over the whole land. We're not talking cloudy. We're not talking overcast. We're talking darkness, okay? Darkness is a very familiar thing to anybody that reads the Bible. It's a very obvious thing. But in the other accounts of Christ's death and this darkness, nothing else is recorded that goes on there. All, all three gospel writers, there's nothing in that three hours. From around noon to around three in the afternoon, there is nothing that happens. So I'm making the assumption, and a lot of scholars do, nothing could happen because it was dark, completely dark. Kind of a dark that almost you feel like wear, you wear it, almost. And Jesus hung there in that darkness, on that cross, constantly lifting himself up so he could breathe, then lowering himself, doing that over and over and over and over again. In that darkness. And as Jesus hung there, he experienced the complete and full wrath of God on him. Sometimes, sometimes we like to soften the the wrath of God in this situation when Jesus is hanging on the cross. <laughs> we like to soften it by saying, well, God just turned his back on Jesus. That's why it got dark. No, that's not why it got dark. It got dark, not because God was absent, not because God's back was turned. It got dark because the presence of God was there in the form of wrath. The wrath he has against anyone who violates his holy word. 
the crimes of humanity caused his wrath to come down and he put it on his son. I mean, this is why we don't like to talk about wrath. It just sounds terrible. How can a God of love be wrathful? Because he's holy and he's perfect. And that's another whole sermon. But let's talk about this now. Darkness was a sign of God's wrath. It was a sign of his judgment and it was a sign of his power. And it's not like he had a switch up there. He could have flipped in, in the switch and cut the sun off. But we don't know exactly how this happened, but it, it got dark. It got really dark. And in the Old Testament, it symbolizes God's judgment, but also God's power. And this sign on the cross is the same thing. There's no difference. It got dark. It says over the whole land, some translations might say earth. We don't know. But we do know from historical accounts, it got dark that day and nobody could explain why. So as the darkness lifts after three hours, Jesus cries out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. And I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he shouted it louder than I did. Jesus cried out, and that's Aramaic. His heart was aching for his father's comfort. He had just experienced the full wrath of God Almighty. He's calling out for his God in that pain and that suffering right there. Eloi means my God. One word has a possessive sound to it, so it's my God, Eloi. Lemma is the word why in Aramaic. And sabachthani is the verb that means forsake or desert or abandon. And in Jesus' agony, he is calling in his human heart language. This is what Jesus probably spoke most of the time was Aramaic. Uh, a, 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 a graduated form of Hebrew, if you will. In his human heart language, he cries out for his God to help him accept this forsaking. Not to turn it off, but to, to accept it. To accept the forsaking, the deserting, the casting away that he is going through by his Father. We just talked about his mercy is more... And it says one line in there, it says it's stronger than darkness. God's mercy is stronger than darkness, and Jesus is proving that. Because he uses the word my. He uses the word possessive of God. He's not saying you're not my God. He's not asking God to reveal himself. He says, my God, my God. God is still his God. If he can go through that and claim God still, we don't have any reason not to. God is still holding him no matter what is going on. He is asking a very human question. A question probably a lot of us have asked when we've went through tough times. He is praying a prayer of scripture back to God. Psalms 22.1 captures that prayer completely. As his soul is languishing in the punishment, he's praying Psalms 22.1. And as we read this morning in Psalms 109, there's a lot of verbiage in there that sounds exactly like what Jesus could say. So now let's notice, let's notice how the world responds to his cry for God. The, the world, it's, it's like they, they misinterpret it for one. They mistranslate it because none of them could speak Aramaic. And then they give him a useless solution. First of all, why did they think he was talking about Elijah? Well, because the word Eloi and the Greek word Elion for Elijah to them sounded the same. 
And see, in their mind, this was not the Messiah. This was not the Son of God hanging on the cross. This was just some man that claimed to be, or just some man that claimed to be the Messiah. So it wasn't, their mind couldn't grasp that he was actually talking to God, that he was actually calling out to God in kind of a, you know, very intimate way. There's a common tradition at this time where when rabbis were in trouble, when Jewish rabbis were in, in distress, they would call out for Elijah to help them. And you know why they did this? Because they're so afraid of saying the word Yahweh. They thought it was blasphemy to say Yahweh. So they came up with other words, blessed one and, and, and other things, but they would never say God and, and talk about the God of the universe, Yahweh. So everybody was, was conditioned to think that this was just a man calling out to God, but actually calling out to Elijah, I mean, for aid and help. They really thought that Jesus would only call out for Elijah, that he would never call out for God. He would never say his God's name, because that would be considered blasphemy, which is the whole reason the, the, the Jews convicted him and uh, took him to Pilate. But you know what? Someone else that's greater than Elijah is up there praying. And since they thought, well, Elijah's the next prophet that's supposed to come and, and herald the Messiah coming, he must be calling for Elijah to come so that he, the Messiah can come and rescue him. But Messiah, the Elijah had already come and the Messiah is hanging on a cross. But they, they didn't get that. Even after the darkness that they had experienced for three hours, they would not believe that Jesus was the Christ. They refused. All the people standing there, whoever it was, Romans, Jews, it didn't matter. They just wouldn't believe. So they thought, well, here's what we'll do to solve his little cry of despair. Now, John actually records that Jesus says, I thirst, in his, his account of the site. So, so they think, oh, we'll, we'll provide a solution. So they go get what, what Mark calls sour wine. Others call vinegar wine. But it's basically very diluted wine that was almost for the soldiers and slaves as a hydration thing. It was their version of Gatorade, I guess. But it wasn't probably near as good. And so they thought, he's thirsty. He says he's thirsty. Let's give him something to drink. So they go and they fill the sponge. And you know what? In this actual act, even though they completely didn't understand what God was doing and what Jesus was doing, they fulfilled a prophecy in Psalm 69, 21. They fulfilled a prophecy about giving me gall. That's what the Old Testament people called it, gall, to drink. So it fulfilled another prophecy. They didn't even realize it. So Jesus was thirsty. Yes, Jesus, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, got thirsty. And after six hours of hanging there, trying to breathe by just pushing up on his body the whole time, he was, and bleeding, he was probably dehydrated a little bit. No, he was dehydrated a lot. And he was human. And he was under severe physical stress. So yeah, he got thirsty. So they took this sponge and they put it on a stick. Now, I don't know if you remember back at Easter, I talked about that when they crucified someone, the crosses weren't near as high and majestic as they show them on the movies. They were probably more like a little bit above the ground, just high enough so people could look in the eyes of the person being crucified. And it would be a, an eye-to-eye -eye deterrence to crime. So Mindy Bowman asked me one, one Wednesday night, why did they need a stick to give him the sponge? And I said, that's a good question. And I looked it up, and it's because they didn't want to touch Jesus. He was bloody and messy. So to put it up to his lips, 
They didn't even want to get near him and touch the cross and get his blood on him, which would have been unclean for some of them. But anyway, so they offered him a sponge on a stick full of sour wine, and Jesus took a little sip of it. He squeezed the, the sponge and got his lips wet because he had two more things to say at that point. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. Luke and John record those words. Mark did not catch those. All he says is that he cried out. He didn't cry out like a dying man pleading for mercy. They heard it like that. That's what they heard. Because Elijah, nor God, was coming to take Jesus down, and Jesus was not going to let anyone take him down. He was completing, completing his mission of dying for sinner's guilt. He was completing propitiation. Propitiation. He was completing it. He wasn't going to be taken down. So he cried out and breathed his last. You know, God has used darkness to judge the world and, and, and discipline the world. First, he used it to discipline Egypt. In Exodus chapter 10, so Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Three days is kind of interesting, isn't it? Three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. So God brought such, like, like I said, almost like you're wearing darkness on Egypt. He's disciplining them to show his glory at the end when he brings the children of Israel out of Egypt. The second time it was on Mount Sinai, darkness came about. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of heavens. Darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. So while God was giving the law of Moses, or the law, the Ten Commandments and the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, it got dark. So this is not something that's uncommon. Darkness has, been, has not been the absence of God. It's always been the presence of God. It's always been his wrath. He has a dark side, if you want to say it that way. Even prophets mention God's darkness on this day when Jesus dies. Amos is one of those. It's, it's in several prophets, but I'm going to read just Amos. It says, Amos says, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, not Amos, the Lord God declares, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. He got dark at noon, stayed there for most of the afternoon. Now, how all this happened is still really a mystery. There's a lot of speculations of, of some sort of natural effect causing it. It was not an eclipse because Passover happens on a full moon. So it's not an eclipse. But the thing about it is it was dark. It wasn't cloudy. It wasn't overcast. It was dark for three hours. And nothing could, could move, nothing could go on until that darkness was over. So there was God pouring out his eternal wrath on Jesus. For the sins of all humanity. On Jesus, his son. No wonder Jesus cries out. He pleads with God for his communion to come back again. The incarnate God is now separated from the eternal God for three hours. That's what went on. 
And anyone who has been truly born again by God, you could never pray that prayer. You could never claim that, that you had been abandoned. You could not honestly do that. If you've been born again, truly, the only people who could declare abandonment by God are those who have been punished in hell. You see what Jesus did for us there? That's propitiation. Only people who wind up in hell can ever pray the same thing, that God has abandoned them, that he has forsaken them. They are the only ones. Believers are never abandoned. Okay? We need to understand that believers are never abandoned, no matter how you feel. Okay? Don't let the feelings confuse you. Don't let how you feel about something confuse you. Believers are never abandoned by the God of mercy. He does not leave us. He doesn't forsake us because he has saved us. That's why he wouldn't go to all that trouble and then abandon us. He holds us in his hand forever. You want some security? Dwell on that for a while. He holds us in his hand forever. So any kind of desertion or abandonment that you feel is probably your own doing. It probably comes from us moving away from God, usually by disobedience or not spending time with him even. Sometimes we want to just let go of God and go do our own thing because it looks more fun. We dally in the world's sins. We abandon our Savior by disobedience. But you can fix that. See, that's the great thing about it. By mercy and grace, we can fix that. Have you ever been abandoned by a friend? Have you ever been abandoned by a sibling, an institution, or maybe a parent? We've probably all experienced some actual form in our human life of some sort of abandonment. Have you ever screamed for help in the middle of that? Then you know what Jesus was screaming. You know what he was saying. Because Jesus felt the worst abandonment of all. Complete abandonment by his Father. He felt more abandoned than any of us could ever feel. He took the total force of God's holy judgment for us, for our sin, for propitiation. Okay? He, he, the sin wasn't just wiped away or forgotten. And a lot of people will try to teach it. They call that expiation. You don't need to remember that word because that's not right. It's propitiation. <laughs> Jesus paid for our sins. God didn't just absentmindedly forget them or throw them away as far as the east is from the west because he just was a nice guy. He punished Jesus because of it. And Jesus took away our sins. And now God throws them as far as the east is from the west or to a, a bottomless pit. He never remembers them. So in your feelings of desertion, trust in the only one that can understand those feelings. Seek his comfort by following Jesus. That's the only way we get out of those feelings and out of those holes of abandonment and depression is we, we come to Jesus and we honestly and sincerely seek him. I mean, he hung in the darkness for three hours so we could experience eternal life. We, could, we wouldn't have to experience eternal darkness in hell. If you're feeling that way, spend an hour in quiet prayer somewhere. Get alone. Talk to God about it. 
It will help you. It will fix that feeling of abandonment. Take his hand, trust his sacrifice, and find eternal peace and contentment in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Take his hand, trust his sacrifice, and find eternal peace. That's where it lies. That's the only place it lies. True contentment only comes from Jesus Christ. So Jesus took the judgment of God, for which then granted us free access to his mercy, to God's mercy. Let's see that. The access to mercy, verses 37 to 39. I'm going to read it again for you. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the centurion, then the, then the centurion, when the centurion, <laughs> I'm lost. When the centurion, who was standing opposite him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this was the son of God. As Jesus gave up his human life, his breath, he did utter some more words, and I told you about them a while ago, Luke and John. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. But this cry that Mark records may have included some words that Mark didn't get, but it included, uh, it was a spiritual cry. It was a spiritual cry of triumph. Jesus had won the victory. He had defeated sin and death. He had paid for our sins. Then after this happens, some really supernatural things take place. The curtain in the temple is ripped from top to bottom. It's, it's really in, incredible. Mark only records one thing that happened, that curtain. Matthew records several things. There was a curtain torn in the temple. The earthquake happens. Tombs are opened up and saints rise from the dead and present themselves in the city after Jesus' resurrection. All that happened when Jesus died. I know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow your minds of some, of some of you. And I don't have time to explain them all, but I, I do know where there's a good paper on it if you want to read it about it. But what is this action that Mark records? The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom in two. Well, let me give you a little explanation of what veil we're talking about. If you don't know, the temple had several chambers, several courts, and in an inner chamber called the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies, nobody could enter except the, the high priest once a year for atonement. But in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, where the Ten Commandments were kept. It was a gold box, probably about, well, you saw it on Raiders of the Lost Ark, about that long, about that high, and, and it had a lid on it with two cherubim facing each other. I mean, they did a pretty good job in that movie of replicating what is described in our, our Bible. And uh, so that's where the Holy of Holies was, and that is where the veil was. The veil... And, and it says veil in a lot of our, our, but it's probably more of a curtain. You couldn't probably see through it. But it hung there. And it, and it was a barrier to everybody. The high priest is the only person that can enter once a year at Yom Kippur to atone for the sins of the children of Israel. He had to take some blood from a, a bull, I believe, in there and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, which that's what the lid was called, the mercy seat. So there's your little Old Testament lesson. But what does this action, this veil being torn, do for us? Well, I'm glad you asked. God is now available to all who believe in Jesus Christ. 
God is now available to all who believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Like I said, once a year the priest went there, he went to the mercy seat and he sprinkled the blood on it to atone for past sins. Not future sins, not even sins that were committed while he was in there. Past sins. You had to wait an entire year to get exonerated from your sins by this act of atonement. But the mercy seat, the lid, was now moved from the temple to the soul. And we have full access to God Almighty. Jesus' blood was the blood of atonement that opened the veil for mercy all the time. 24-7, 365. It's never, uh, there's, you never take a break from it. And access to God's mercy is found only in Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ. At this point, temple worship is over. The Jewish sacrificial system is gone. Israel's laws that they follow in terms of ceremonial law that you may read in Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, gone, not necessary. Now, the moral law is another whole story, and that's another sermon as well. But the ceremonial system of, of sacrifice is gone. And it really, this really happened. We have three gospel writers that record it. That should be good enough for us. But guess what? There are some Jewish historical records that talk about the unusual things that happened the day Jesus died, when he died. Not to mention the curtain being torn from top to bottom and the tombs opening up, the earthquake that happened according to Matthew. There were a lot of other things, and that's, that's in the paper I could refer you to as well. But it really happened. And you know why he, Mark uses the top to bottom description? Because if you were going to rip that curtain as a human being and you walked in there and you wanted to grab it and rip it, you would have to do it from the bottom because it was 30 feet tall. The curtain rod was 30 feet over your head or 30 feet from the floor. So you would tear it here and rip it up to the top. It was torn from top to bottom. It's a supernatural event. God did it to tell us and to tell the Jews if they had listened, sacrifices are over. It doesn't have to. You don't have to come to me. God did this through Jesus Christ. Propitiation. We now have access to the throne of God, to his mercy seat, to find mercy for our sins. Past, present, future sins. In Jesus Christ, we have that. So now salvation is available without atonement, sacrifices, or rituals anymore. And now we have a guy that actually proves that happened. The centurion. The centurion was not an officer. He was actually an enlisted man in the Roman army. But he was in charge of 100 guys. 100, and so his detail, this guy's detail, was probably the ones that had been around Jesus all day and night during the whole trials and everything. And now they had to carry out this crucifixion. So he'd been there. He wasn't just a guy that showed up on the scene. He had watched it all. He saw Jesus die. He witnessed the testimony of Jesus' death his commitment to the death, his courage during the death, and the character in Christ's death. He witnessed all of that. He witnessed how he talked to Pilate and the, and the Jewish leaders, how he didn't respond when they were falsely accusing him, but how he did talk about a kingdom. He probably heard some of that. And he saw and knew that this was the Son of God. 
Jesus took this humiliation of the cross. He took this agony of the cross with such courage that this centurion drew that conclusion that he was the Son of God. And this centurion had probably seen many people die on a cross. He'd probably seen lots. I don't even want to guess how many he'd probably seen because he'd probably been in the service of the army for a while. You don't get to be in charge of 100 people without having proved yourself. But even in even witnessing Jesus, the darkness that came over the land for three hours and the earthquake under his feet probably just punctuated the fact that this was the Son of God. Was he converted? Did he find grace for his soul? Why did he profess this out loud? All of a sudden he just says this out loud. What happened to make this soldier see that this was the Son of God? Well, I believe this man felt after all he had witnessed, I, feel, I believe he felt, literally felt, his sins lift off of his shoulders when he realized that and acknowledged that. And he, he couldn't contain it. He couldn't keep his mouth shut. I mean, to say that, Romans, Romans were very religious too. They had their own set of gods. But to say this man that they had just crucified was the son of God would have been almost like, what are you saying? You're, you're, you're kidding me. We would never crucify the son of God if we knew he was the son of God. But he couldn't keep his mouth shut. He felt, literally felt his sins leave his soul. He felt forgiveness. He felt them placed on Jesus. And just like the thief, this Roman had probably no theological training. He didn't know propitiation existed. He didn't know anything about God except he needed his sins forgiven. He did not have the background to fully understand everything he said about Jesus being the Son of God. But he knew enough. It was clear enough to him to see that his sins needed forgiveness. That the man in front of him, he was standing opposite Jesus, that's what the verse says. Opposite Jesus, the man in front of him was God's son. He was fully deity. And he, the centurion, was a sinner needing forgiveness. He knew enough to do that. And he was changed. This centurion saw God grant mercy. Remember, the mercy seat's open now. The, the veil has been torn. Anybody can go to God for forgiveness. And he knew he was a sinner, and he, and he knew it, that this death of this man had given him forgiveness. Mercy there was great, and grace was free. At the cross, at the cross, was the blood applied to his soul. Glory to his name. We sing that sometimes, and we kind of forget what actually went on on the cross and what that centurion went through. You know, Veterans Day was Friday. It was a great day. And there's a saying that goes around a lot of times at Veterans Day, Memorial Day. All gave some, but some gave all. And Keith Tipsworth, he gave it all. He didn't even know we were at war with Japan, but he gave it all. Yet our earthly national freedom is not near as important as our eternal freedom in Christ Jesus. Our eternal life in heaven, and that freedom comes only by the death of one man, Jesus Christ. Christ's death made the curtain obsolete for the Jews and carved a path for the rest of us to go to God for our forgiveness, to ask God for our forgiveness. And the centurion took this path. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews is written for a Jewish audience to help them understand where their sacrifices and rituals all went because of Jesus. 
So this is what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Accept the mercy of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And then you receive the cleansing of your sins by grace from God. God's mercy is precious. Agree? God's mercy is precious. We shouldn't take it for granted. We shouldn't take it lightly. It came at a very, very high cost. A very high price. The Son of God. The Son of God. Surely this man, truly this man, is the Son of God. Jesus suffered the most agonizing and humiliating death to give us access into that holy place of God, with God, which is God's throne in heaven, not an Ark of the Covenant in the temple. That's where our ultimate mercy seat lies. And that's where we want access to. And God, and Jesus gave it all for us to have that security, that assurance. Because eternity waits for us all. Eternity is out there. It comes. So we don't need to take this for granted. Our life, even though we feel like it might be long some days, (laughs) it's very short. The psalmist says it's just as wide as your hand. We're just a vapor. Eternity is out there. The thief and this centurion, they saw their need and they acknowledged their sin. And they confessed their faith by the mercy brought by Jesus, the Son of God, for our sins. His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Every day you have that mercy to find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Our sins are many, but his mercy is definitely more. And you may not be near death like the thief. You may not feel an earthquake under your feet right now to convince you, but your sins need God's mercy. Everybody's sins needs God's mercy. And only by the blood and death of Jesus Christ can you find mercy for your soul. So ask God to save you. Don't wait. Don't wait. So Jesus faced the dark wrath of God. And he gave us total access to God's mercy. And then we see some hope. Persevere outside just just a stone's throw from Golgotha. The hope of the women. Verses 40 through 41. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women came up with him to Jerusalem. So I, I scratched my head most of the week with why is this passage right here? Why is this passage about women right here? I mean, they're important, but... It, it seemed kind of out of place till I kept reading and kept thinking and kept praying. And he includes this account of women being on the scene because they witnessed it all. All of it. They didn't run away and hide like the disciples had done. The only disciple that was there was John. But they witnessed it all. They stuck around. So why is their presence important? Why does Mark take the chance to mention it? They, because they linger and they look on. Why? 
Because they followed Jesus the whole time. They're all from Galilee. One of them's the mother of two of his disciples, one of his disciples. They followed him all the way from Galilee. They watched from a safe distance. Now, you wonder why, well, why were they standing off? Well, one, in that day and age, women were kind of second-class citizens, unfortunately. Um, but also, I think they just didn't want to get in the way. Get in the way of the soldiers doing their job, and then they get scolded or even punished. They just wanted to be out there just far enough to not bother the soldiers, but just close enough to see their Savior crucified. They watched in grief as the Son of God died. And the, and the reason they stayed there is that he loved them. They knew that. He accepted them. He honored them. Some of them he healed. Mary Magdalene, she's mentioned, she's mentioned a lot. He cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. Do you think she's pretty devoted to Jesus? I mean, I've never had one demon in me. I can't imagine seven. She, she had no place else to go but Jesus Christ. She was free because of Jesus. So yeah, she's hanging around. These women had probably all seen the miracles that Jesus had done, the healings, blind people, Zacchaeus coming out of a tree, getting saved. I mean, they'd seen it all. They'd been right there. They saw his tender compassion toward the ill and the, and the hurting. And they still lingered there because they were following Jesus. They didn't abandon him. They were following Jesus. They, they stayed there. They, they were hoping to be able to care for him again. Maybe they relented. Maybe mercy showed up and Pilate took him off the cross. They wanted to be there in case that happened. But they had hope too. They had hope in him for their salvation. They had hope. That's the only reason they would be sticking around. If a man's dying that you've been caring for, it's probably not something you're going to want, want to stick around for. They had hope that Jesus was the Messiah. They had hope in his promise to save. They had hope in the words of truth that came out of his mouth. They had heard it all. These ladies heard most of what the 12 disciples had heard. And by this simple act, I see in them that they more likely believed it before the disciples did. They stuck around because they were wanting to help Jesus. They'd heard all those words. They'd heard Jesus say, when I rise again in three days. They'd heard that. Maybe they were hoping it was metaphorical for three minutes. I don't know. But they were hanging around because they had hope in Jesus Christ. Their grief their anguish, their fear, their despair wouldn't motivate someone to hang around and watch the end product, watch the actual death of their Savior or someone they loved. It wasn't those emotions that was motivating them. It was hope. Hope. Hope of an assurance. Hope of an assurance that things not yet seen were about to come true. And that's what kept them there. I quote a line from a movie called Shawshank Redemption. Hope is a powerful thing. I love that movie. It's one of my favorite. But hope is a powerful thing. It may be the best thing. Like these women. These women had it. They had hope in Jesus and they leaned into it while they watched him bleed and die. I mean, in the darkness, they could have slipped off and probably no one would have even noticed. But their hope kept them there through the three hours of darkness. I've had 
I've led or been part of eight funerals this year. When I, when I felt, when I had the call to come be a pastor, I never dreamed I would experience that many in one year. But at these things, at funerals, is the one, this is the one thing I see everybody needs, and that's hope. They don't need a temporary hope. They need an everlasting hope. They need an eternal hope, real hope. Hope in the resurrection, hope in eternal life, hope in a better day coming. Not in this life, but the next. And hope, that kind of hope, only finds its traction in Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus It doesn't find it in anything else the world can produce. We can only have that kind of hope in Jesus. For in this hope, we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul tells the Romans in chapter 8. These women had hope. That's the only reason they're still there. They had hope. And that is why they stayed. And that's why they watched Jesus all the way to the grave. We'll see that next week. They weren't staying because they needed closure. They were staying because they had hope in the man, the Son of God. Now, we should learn something from these women, okay? First of all, women are not inferior to men, okay? So whatever lie is out there saying that is not true. Women are not inferior to men. They are crucial to the ministry of the gospel. Jesus makes that obviously clear. In the way he treats them, the way he involves them. And and Christ employed them. That's the second thing. Christ employed them in necessary service to his earthly ministry. They had a vital role and they accepted it. They embraced it. They loved it. And the last thing we should uh, see is that we should have as much hope and loyalty as they had to our Savior. They never ran. They never hid. They never dodged any accusations of them being followers of Jesus Christ. They stayed there watching to the very end. And when they took him off the cross, they helped him. They helped them ramp him. They were there. Now, one of the things I notice these days is that men seem to be scarce in churches. Men, spiritual leadership for men seems to be scarce, seems to be rare. And I believe part of it is that men have lost hope. They've lost hope in the God of the universe, that Jesus Christ is the only thing they need. They've lost hope in the power of the gospel and the necessity of it. I think men need to get some hope like these women have. Because hope is not wishful thinking. That's not the hope Jesus is talking about. It's not just wishful thinking. It's an active, deliberate action. It's an act of faith in Jesus Christ. That's what hope is. And we all need to grasp the hope found in Jesus like these women did. Never quit, never give up, never abdicate our hope. Hope is the only thing that will give us strength in this life. Hope in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where we get hope. It's for the forgiveness of sins, by the way. And we all have those. And like these women had this hope, it will save us as it saved them. So as the Son of God died on that humiliating cross, we saw in here the three episodes that God's wrath was satisfied, that propitiation took place. And Peter writes about this in in his letter in 1 Peter. 
He says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. The death of Jesus, the Son of God, carried out justice, God's justice. And our souls benefit for eternity from that. Because the Son of God died for our sins. So we're going to take some time now to pray. Silently where you are, you can come to the front if you want. But thank God for your salvation if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. That you've been forgiven by God. Thank Him for that. And then ask Him to, to save and to help you in your lives. To help our lives be a reflection of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. So let's take that time to pray right now.